BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Today on the California Report magazine, stories about connection and community. We'll head to an unusual kind of library in Santa Monica where the books you check out are actually people. She was a different race, a different age, different background, but we had that in common. And I was like, wow, and it really made me kind of emotional. I, I hadn't experienced that kind of conversation with a stranger before. And we'll meet a man who was inspired to become a firefighter after losing his own home in Santa Rosa to wildfire. Well, it was a feeling of wanting to do more, wanting to actually help and give back to the community. We'll also visit the Oceano Dunes on the Central Coast to check out the relics of an intentional community founded by an eccentric artist and astrologer back in the 1920s. And I was utterly entranced by the whole environment. I was entranced by the dunes. And so I decided that I could come and live in the dunes without any money. This was 1926. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. California prides itself on being a diverse state, welcoming folks from all kinds of backgrounds. But actually connecting people who have radically different life experiences, that can be a challenge. The Santa Monica Public Library is hosting events to encourage deep one-on-one conversations between people from different backgrounds. Reporter Claire Wiley tells us about the human library. Being in church always made Jesse Amend feel claustrophobic. That kind of environment was a huge trigger because I was just sitting in a room full of people I thought were perfect and that I was the only one that was carrying this mess. Jessie has obsessive compulsive disorder. One night during Bible study, she could feel anxiety rising. When it was her turn to make a request for a prayer, she realized she couldn't speak. I started crying and just babbling because I can't gather my thoughts. That sensation of just crying and trying to breathe, but trying to stay composed because there's 20 people staring at me. I was just broken. When the panic subsided, Jesse felt mortified. Everyone saw me just completely fall apart, completely vomit my emotions and my fears. And it's extremely raw showing everyone your insides and all your darkness. But later, as everyone was gathering their things and leaving the room, a woman approached Jesse. And she was like, I, I have a lot of insecurity and anxiety. She was trying to, like, say, like, me too. Like, 
I know what this is and I've experienced this, but I think it definitely started to somewhere in the back of my head trigger that thought of like, you helped someone by being a hot mess. So maybe this is like my deal in life is to be the one that speaks up because I've never been good at hiding anyways. So um, I'm an open book. The woman's response and the moment of connection stuck with Jessie for years. She began talking about her OCD and was surprised by how often people were grateful she had. Then Jessie came across a quarterly event at the Santa Monica Library called The Human Library, an opportunity to become an open book to strangers. Instead of checking out a book to read, participants can check out a person. My name is Jessie, and the title of my book is OCD. My name is Philip. The title of my book is Survivor of Conversion Therapy. At the circulation desk, there's a list of human book titles to choose from. Hi, I'm Heidi, and the title of my book is Survivor of Abuse. My name is Adam Lenderman, and I publish under the title Gay. If you were caught off guard by those labels, so was I. But that's kind of the point. Jesse, Philip, Heidi, and Adam have all experienced things that other people may not understand, and they've signed up to have frank conversations about it. Here's how it works. After choosing a human book, you sit down together at a small table in the library courtyard. For 30 minutes, you can ask them anything. I get a lot of questions about how I came out and how my family responded. I often encourage people to to dig deep and ask questions that may feel taboo. When I'm in a conversation really with a reader, the first response is a little bit of shock, wanting to know actually how I've been able to survive through all of it, where I find my strength. For a couple of decades, I pursued Christian conversion therapy. Long story short, I did not go from being a gay man to a straight man. However, I also wasn't damaged from those experiences. I went to What's the most beautiful for me is when a reader will say to me, oh, I never thought of it that way. A light bulb has been turned on for them. And it's not it about not changing anyone's game. mind, but everyone walks away with just a little bit more empathy and lightness, like you feel it. It's a nice idea, connecting with people who may have different experiences than you, but it also sounds a bit awkward. I wondered what it was like for the readers. They tell you in the very beginning, ask anything you want, don't be afraid. Inga Grimet heard about the Santa Monica event through a friend and was interested right away. When I sat down, I got, <laughs> I got nervous because I didn't want to offend by asking the wrong questions. Like, I was nervous. Inga was impressed by the range of topics, but she also had reservations. At first, it seemed like the human books were being reduced to labels. You don't see the person as the person until after they start speaking with you. Those labels and tropes start to fall off once they start telling their story because within their story, you start to see and pull things that are similar to you. Books are also trained to share their own experience. They're not expected to speak on behalf of an entire identity or community. Inga spoke to a man who's in recovery from addiction. It's a topic that hit close to home. I never really talked about how to approach family members that were recovering addicts. I kind of just kept it to myself. So with him, 
It was easy because he was a stranger and I can just ask. It really was like, in a way, it was like checking out a book because all you see is the title and then the cover. Shivani Tillotson also went to the event as a reader. He spoke to a young woman living with functional neurological disorder and chronic fatigue syndrome. And it was very triggering for me because I have degenerative bones in my spine and I did not expect to talk to someone who I identified with so much. She was a different race, a different age, different background, but we had that in common. And I was like, wow, and it really made me kind of emotional. I, I hadn't experienced that kind of conversation with a stranger before. That's exactly the kind of unexpected moment of connection the founder of the Human Library, Ronnie Abergel, hopes for. He started the project in Denmark in 2000 and now runs events all over the world. Before we knew it, we had put together a format where some of the most unpopular groups in our community were volunteering to be on loan and answer questions about their personal life. Ronnie has always been curious about people who are different from him. He wanted to create a safe place for people to ask the questions they're wondering, but don't often feel comfortable asking. Very personal questions, actually. You know, like, um, from the obese person, how did you become so overweight? And he soon realized there are lots of people who feel misunderstood, like police officers or sex workers. It's so frustrating for some people to sort of be observed, judged, but have no chance to really explain who they are. Ronnie says the goal is open conversation, not to let the books get bullied. So human library trainers coach the volunteer books on how to handle offensive or aggressive readers. We teach all our books, look, you're in charge here, and if you get a question that's too personal or way off topic, you can always say, I'm sorry, but those pages haven't been published yet. If the intention is to offend, then we recommend books stop the reading immediately and return to the library. Volunteers known as librarians are also on hand to step in. Ronnie says in thousands of sessions, he can count the number of bad incidents on one hand. That may be because it's a self-selecting crowd. Both readers and books want to participate. If a difficult reaction does come up, books can speak to a volunteer psychologist. The organization has done a small number of studies to find out what impact it's having. A survey of readers in Indianapolis, for example, was positive. And there was a lot of things that they remembered from the session, and they also could give us concrete examples of how that new knowledge had empowered them to act differently. A European study from 2021 found that readers reflected on their own biases after the event and were more sensitive towards stigmatized or less visible groups. But what we're looking for when we're doing our impact study is how did people perceive the experience? Do they feel empowered and inspired to do something different from before? One thing's for sure, the human library can have a big impact on the books who keep coming back. Jessie, the Santa Monica woman with OCD, she's done 11 readings so far and has no intention of stopping. I personally believe that getting things out of the dark and into the light is necessary. It's like this glimmer of a moment where, like, we just did something that made a centimeter of progress, maybe, but 
It was something. For The California Report, I'm Claire Wiley in Santa Monica. The Human Library hosts regular events at the Santa Monica Library, as well as bi-monthly online readings. You can learn more at our website, calreport.org, and you can find out how to apply to be a book yourself. Now we're going to meet a man who lost his home to the massive wildfire that destroyed parts of Santa Rosa back in 2017. Lupe Durant says that experience inspired him to want to learn how to be a firefighter. KQED's labor correspondent Farida Javala Romero brings us his story. In a forest near Mount Tamalpais in Marin County, a group of young recruits in firefighting uniforms are practicing a mock rescue learning how to use ropes and carabiners to help hikers who fall off steep ravines. All team, you ready? A woman on a harness rappels off a vertical drop by a rushing creek. Once at the bottom, she puts another harness on a man playing the victim. And from the top of the cliff, the rest of the team pulls on a rope until the two are back on top. That was good. That was exciting. On a break, Lupe Duran is sweaty but exhilarated. He's excited to learn these skills from professional firefighters. He talks about them like they're rock stars. The captains you meet, the battalion chiefs you meet, it's, you can't really get that exposure just walking in off the street. You know, if, unless you know somebody that is in the fire department, which really makes a difference. I met Duran for the first time in 2017, shortly after the Tubbs fire had destroyed his home in Santa Rosa. At the time, he was overwhelmed with loss and sleeping on friends' couches. A lot of people lost everything that year. Um, So it was kind of just trying to start new, figure out how to start over again um, and move forward. Before the fire, he was taking community college classes to become a welder. But the disaster changed his mind. He didn't want to feel like a powerless civilian anymore. Well, it was a feeling of wanting to do more, wanting to actually help and give back to the community. He found the Fire Foundry by chance through an advertisement. The one-year program, run by Marin County and local organizations, prepares women and people of color for a career in fire service. But unlike similar programs, the Fire Foundry covers the cost of everything from books and prerequisite classes to mentorship and even housing at fire stations. Recruits also get a job in fuel reduction with the county, a game changer for Durand. We're actually getting paid to do this training through our program, which is an awesome difference. Most emergency calls fire departments get are not about fires, but about medical emergencies. So many job openings are actually for firefighter paramedics or emergency medical technicians. The expense and years it can take to get certified is prohibitive for many people. And the process is intimidating for those who don't know anyone in the profession. That helps explain why firefighters nationwide are still overwhelmingly white and male. In California, the ranks are more diverse in terms of race and ethnicity. But there's more progress to be made, especially outside big cities. Marin County firefighters, for example, are still more than 80% white. Marin County Captain Rick Wannaberger says he sees all sorts of benefits from becoming more diverse, starting with better serving people in their hour of need. My engine, you know, currently all, they're all, we're all English speakers. You know, uh, some of us can speak a little bit of Spanish, but how much better would it be if I truly was fluent 
how much that person would be feel truly at ease. Duran can't wait to get a spot in one of those engines, and he's getting closer. He's completing an EMT course. He's set to get an associate degree in fire technology. And he just got a seasonal job directly with Marin County Fire as a wildfire defensible space inspector. It's very exciting. I mean, it's all I've wanted for the past six years. <laughs> so it's, you know, took some time, but it's paying off now. The fire foundry has only been around since the start of 2022, but its future is in question without more long-term funding. Duran says he worries other people coming up behind him won't get the chance he got. For the California Report, I'm Farida Jabala Romero. lot of beaches here in California where you can just drive your car right onto the sand. But there is a place on the Central Coast where you're not just allowed, but you're actually encouraged to rev up your engine. It's called Oceano Dunes, and you can find it south of Pismo Beach. It's this massive 1,500-acre complex of sand dunes, and about 2 million people visit here every year. They come to ride dune buggies, to camp, and to light bonfires. But visitors driving on this sand may not realize these dunes hold some unusual California history. For about two decades, starting back in the 1920s, Oceano Dunes was home to this bohemian community of artists, mystics, and writers. They built cabins on the sand, trying to create a community apart from society. Locals called them the Dunites. We spilled wine to the earth gods, and we threw wine to the well for the gods of, of the water, and we invoked the air and the fire in the air, which is lightning. The settlement is long gone, buried under the sand, but that doesn't mean the Dunites have been forgotten. From KCBX in San Luis Obispo, Benjamin Perper tells us about this hidden history. If you're driving on the dunes, it's smart to have a truck. There are two reasons for that. So you don't get stuck, and so you don't get run over. I've borrowed a four-wheel drive pickup truck because there's no way my little Prius could have made it out here. The ocean is in front of me, and to my left and right are long stretches of beach. Everywhere I look, there are ATVs, all-terrain vehicles, racing each other, trucks zooming around, people drinking around campfires. It's chaos. But I'm not just here for a joyride. I'm looking for a specific spot on the dunes where a community of artists and mystics once lived. A few miles down, I find myself in an especially popular spot. It's full of people and vehicles, and it smells like campfire and gasoline. Kids are doing wheelies on their ATVs. People are drinking in truck beds. There are even people riding horses. It looks fun. I get out of the truck on the lookout for speeding vehicles and consult my treasure map, really just directions on my phone but still. Okay, from where you park, you may be able to see a small green area at the top of the four dunes to the east. I don't know what a four dune is. Sometimes the sand piles up west of them so you can see, okay. These are the tops of willows at Moimel. Wait, what? There's nothing here. No willows, no cabins, not even a plaque, just sand and shrubbery. I knew there wasn't much left here anymore, but I figured I'd see something. There is still something left of the Dunite community, it's just not out here on the beach. 
this is it, you know, the last remaining dune structure. Just a few miles away, historian Norm Hammond shows me a restored cabin on the grounds of the Oceano Depot, a local history museum. It's the original cabin Gavin Arthur, the community's unofficial leader, lived in. Norm helped bring the cabin here after Oceano residents saved it from the shifting dunes. He's filled it with dunite artifacts he's collected, paintings, photos, even a tapestry. This was the community house where they prepared meals and that sort of thing. When it comes to the Dunites, Norm is the guy. He moved from Wyoming to Oceano in 1967 and spent a lot of time hiking around the dunes. It occurred to me that people could live there uh, because the weather's good and the, the, the climate, everything is perfect. And there's a fish in the ocean and, and clams on the beach and plenty of uh, things to survive on out there. He came across a book called Face of the Clam, a fictionalized account of the Dunites' history. Fascinated, Norm wondered if there was anything left of the Bohemian community. One day in 1970, he was hiking the dunes when he came across some willow trees, exactly like he'd read in the book. On the other side, a clearing. And I could see smoke coming up in there, and I thought, somebody's back here. Norm got down on his hands and knees and crawled into the clearing. To his surprise, there were small buildings and an outhouse. A man was there washing clothes in a tub over a fire. Norm says it was clear the man had been living here as some kind of hermit for years. So I didn't move and I kind of wanted to look around before he saw me because my curiosity is running full throttle. The man turned around and locked eyes with Norm, who braced himself for a confrontation. But the man simply turned back around to his fire without a word. So uh, I took that as uh, my reason to leave quietly the way I came in, which I did do. Just a few weeks later, Norm read in the paper that the man he stumbled upon had died. His name was Bert Skavink, and he was the last Dunite. He lived out there long after the rest had left. So that lit a fire under me, and I wanted to know more. The most important and intriguing Dunite is Gavin Arthur. Born in 1901, he was the grandson of President Chester Arthur. But he didn't go into politics. He became an eccentric artist and astrologer. After spending some time in San Francisco, he moved down to Oceano in the 20s. He met other Bohemians in the area and eventually decided to build an artist colony on the dunes. He called it Moimel. And it means in Gaelic, pastures of honey. And also, it's a place reserved in Gaelic Irish heaven for poets. It's not clear how many people lived there, but likely hundreds. Besides its ragtag group of poets and mystics, Moy Mel hosted literary giants like John Steinbeck and Upton Sinclair. The motto for Moy Mel was uh, individuality you know, within community. That was the motto. And as we all live together, we're all different. And, uh, but we have a common goal to build a better world. It's that ethos that's fascinated Norm all these years. He's taken it upon himself to not only preserve, but spread the word about the Dunites and their brief history. One of the ways he does that is through an annual event at the depot. It's a Sunday morning, and a small crowd has gathered for Dunite days. It's a chance to appreciate all the texts, artwork, and artifacts from Moy Mel, as well as the restored cabin itself. In the background is harp music, recorded in 1984, played by Gavin Arthur's nephew, Joel Andrews. 
The crowd is mostly older people, Oceano residents, local historians, and people who happen to walk by and see the sign. What everyone seems to have in common is a fascination with what they're seeing and hearing. Like old editions of the Dune Forum, the Dunites literary magazine. The Dunes of Oceano are distinctly original. Published in the 1930s, its six editions were full of fiction, poetry, and essays written at Moimel. Like this one by Charlotte Arthur, Gavin's first wife, describing the community. Mysteriously, one is seized with a desire to drop all standard conformities and be utterly natural. This can, of course, lead almost anywhere. But it is like an infection, and it is difficult to avoid. The newcomer is at first bewildered by the rapidity of his symptoms. He gives way to them fearfully at first, then with assurance, finally with a mad and joyous abandon. Norm plays a recording of Gavin Arthur himself recounting how he discovered the dunes in the 20s. And I was utterly entranced by the whole environment. I was entranced by the dunes. And so I decided that I could come and live in the dunes without any money. This was 1926. This was the draw for a lot of dunites. It was a place where you could live cheaply and make art. And many felt there was something special about the dunes. Underneath the dunes, there is a great spiritual force, which I would never not acknowledge. World War II brought an end to Moimel. Arthur turned the cabins over to the Coast Guard, who used them to train soldiers. Most of the Dunites left and didn't return even after the war ended. The whole ambiance of the dunes changed. People didn't go back to that lifestyle, so that really was the death knell for the whole uh, phenomenon. Gavin Arthur went back to San Francisco, became an early hippie, and even helped organize the Summer of Love. While some Dunites lingered on the Oceano Dunes for a few more decades, the commune itself was over. Nature reclaimed most of Moimel's cabins. The sand dunes are in constant motion. Norm says the Dunites wanted to escape the distractions of modern-day life. It's an idea that appeals to him. If you really want to know where you're going and who you are and your place in the universe, you kind of have to get away from that. Of course, the Oceano Dunes aren't really a place for peace and quiet anymore. No Dunite stargazing or pagan rituals now. There are too many vehicles rooming around for that. But that could change soon. The state plans to phase out vehicle use on the dunes in the next few years, citing environmental and air quality concerns. There are plans to restore bird habitat and vegetation, and maybe those old willows will even make a comeback. Someday, it might feel a bit more like the Moimel of Gavin Arthur's day. For now, I'll leave you with a stanza from a poem by the Dunite Ellen Johnson. Memory belongs to time. I shall not need to remember dunes. I climbed in the sea's thunder, up and up with aching thighs, and stood on the highest sand crest, behind the dusk circle of the mountain, before the burning blue where the earth curves the sea. For the California Report magazine, I'm Benjamin Perper in Oceano.
And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Katrina Schwartz is our interim senior editor. Susie Racho is our producer director. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer with help this week from Christopher Beale and Seal Muller. And Jessica Carissa is our intern. And I'm Sasha Koka. Just a heads up that I'll be taking a break this summer for a couple months. I'm going to spend some time off traveling with my kids in Latin America. You'll be hearing from guest hosts Bianca Taylor and Aditi Bandlamudi while I'm gone. And I'll be back mid-August. This is the California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.